I sometimes feel that I'm limping from coffee to chocolate to cake lately and the occasional glass of red. And it's easy to be lulled by the idea that that's fine if you overindulge every so often, if you don't have a so-called addictive personality. Let's take a look at what really does lead us to addiction and how we can prevent problem drug and alcohol use in turbulent times, which for some of us includes Christmas, I know. Nicole Lee is adjunct professor at the National Drug Research Institute and director at 360 Edge, which is a consultancy specialising in the alcohol and other drug sector. Uh, Nicole, welcome to Life Matters. Thanks, Hilary. And with us too is Dr Lillian Najad, who's a clinical psychologist. Lillian, great to have you with us. Thanks, Hilary. Nicole, we could look at the last four years, I guess, as a period of chronic stress for a lot of people. What effects has that had uh, on our drug and alcohol use in Australia? Mm, Well, what we saw um, during the COVID period was um, some people actually decreased their alcohol consumption and their drug use, um, partly because of access. Um, The shops were closed, restaurants were closed. Um, but a lot of people also increase because they were at home, um, easy access if they've got alcohol in the house. And overall, there was a slight increase in alcohol use, um, particularly. So, and, and we know that during disasters and stressful times, um, that does tend to happen. There does tend to be an, an uplift in alcohol and drug use. And so uh, was that true of other substances as well as alcohol? Yeah, well, initially in the, um, the beginning of COVID, um, when our borders were closed, it was much harder to get drugs into the country. So um, things like cannabis, which was, is grown in Australia, that was much st- still easy enough to access. That didn't, uh, that wasn't affected. But things like methamphetamine, which is um, has has is a high import, um, and heroin, those kinds of drugs, um, we saw a. a not necessarily a reduction in use, but it was much harder to access them. I was really fascinated to read recently, Nicole, that people tend to drink more when they're happy and drink to excess when they're happy because we just think of people drowning their sorrows. How are we seeing that play out? Well, this is an interesting thing because everybody's slightly different and um, we have these things called uh, that psychologists call expectancies. And so if um, you expect alcohol to make you feel Um, happy, then when you're sad, you might want to reach for a a glass. Um, But and if you if you think it's going to um, help you party, then you're going to if you're happy, then you're going to reach for a glass. So everybody's a little bit different. Some people drink more when they feel sad or stressed and some people drink more when they feel happy and joyous. Dr Lillian Najad, how effective is that short term hit of uh, alcohol or a drug at relieving stress compared to other longer term strategies? Well, I think that um, it is basically because of that kind of immediate effect that alcohol or other substances can have that makes it something that is so compelling and something that people reach for. Um, a, a lot of the other strategies that people can use for stress relief can have some immediate effects as well, but they don't um, are they're not often top of mind. Uh, and sometimes it takes practice to be able to get the immediate effects. So often we're using substances or short-term relief, um, even though it might be short-lived and it might lead to longer-term problems. 
So when we think about, we're going to talk in a bit more detail soon about some uh, strategies that we can hone in in times of uh, less stress that will serve us better in times of stress. But what happens in periods of chronic stress, Lillian? Is it harder to cope for people where the, perhaps the resolution to the, the dangerous situation is not clear? Yes. Uh, when we are under chronic stress, we are basically being flooded with um, adrenaline and cortisol. And sometimes what happens when that happens is that it makes it really hard to think properly. So when we're in high distress, our brain really just doesn't function as well. And so we might make choices that aren't actually particularly helpful for us. Um, they might be effective, like we were talking about before. People might use alcohol or, or other substances because they provide immediate relief and they serve that function of either increasing our positive emotions or decreasing negative emotions. But they're not healthy choices and they aren't good long-term choices. So chronic stress can actually make us make poorer choices because the part of our brain that is the part that helps us make good decisions, that inhibits impulsivity, that um, inhibits risk-taking behaviors, that's good at planning and organizing and kind of seeing what long-term effects might be isn't working as well. Mm, yes, I'm thinking of my chocolate biscuit consumption as you are speaking. <laughs> Dr. Lillian Najad is a clinical psychologist who's clearly been to my house and Nicole Lee is adjunct professor at the National Drug Research Institute and director at 360 Edge Consultancy, specialising in the alcohol and other drug sectors. Nicole, let's get to the $60 million question. Is there such a thing as an addictive personality, people who are more likely to get into trouble with dr alcohol and drugs? Well, the short answer is no, there's not an addictive personality. Personality. So um, there's not one set of personality traits that inevitably lead to addiction. And there's there's not necessarily something different from people who are addicted to substances compared to others. It, we think of it more now on a continuum. Um, but that, that idea started... Um, it was a helpful idea when it started kind of way back in the 1930s, 1920s. Before that, alcohol and drug problems were seen as a moral failing and this shift to thinking about it more as a, a trait or a personality disorder or a brain disorder. You might hear people talk about addiction as a brain dis a brain disease. It's a chemical thing. Yeah, um, that was a step up from um, of people being kind of blamed for their own alcohol use. But we know a lot more about the brain. We know a lot more about addiction now. Well, and there was still quite a lot of stigma attached to it at that point, wasn't it? It was seen as having a pretty weak personality. Yeah, that's right. And it's and, and there's still a lot of stigma attached to it because that is a, an, an enduring idea that people have an addictive personality and it's kind of their fault, really. Yeah. So what is going on? Because a lot of people go, oh, well, it's all genetic. And others are like, well, it's all about your personality. And others are saying, look, it's a combination of environmental. Can we pin it down? Well, it's a very complex, hard to predict mix of risk risk, risk factors, basically. So a bit of it's genetic. Um, we definitely know that people with um, a family history of alcohol drug problems tend to be more susceptible. Um, we're not sure exactly how much of that is a genetic predisposition versus a, um, a learning because they're in the same family and they're in that environment. Um, we think it's about 50 to 60% for alcohol, for example, that is passed on through the genes and the rest of it is um, some kind of environmental impact. Uh, a bit of it is um, what we might call um, tra traits or 
um, temperament. Um, we know that people who are super risk-taking and people who are anxious or depressed, and they kind of seem like at either ends of the spectrum. Um, but though both of those kind of um, personality temperaments um, tend to um, develop alcohol and drug problems um, more likely. So is that about emotional regulation? Because both those ends of the spectrum seem like they're having trouble coping. That's exactly right. Um, but also, you know, anxious people who have good coping skills or have learnt good coping skills, then that reduces their risk um, as well. So that's exactly right. It is really about emotion regulation and um, coping skills. Well, and that idea that it, uh, there's a 50% uh, genetic predisposition that's passed on is heartening too because it means it's not inevitable in any way. Exactly, it? yeah. Yeah. Um, are there, so we talked about the personality types. Uh, I've heard the phrase the drug, the set and the setting, which uh, is used to kind of explain why some people uh, overindulge. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so this is a, a, it's a way that um, alcohol and drug ex- treatment experts think about the, the components that make up risk factors. And we know that there's multiple risk factors. The more risk factors you have, the more likely you're going to develop problems. And we think of them as in um, the drug itself. So some drugs are more addictive than others. Um, the the set, which is the your personality traits or your temperament or your um, family environment or whatever, um, however you've grown up, and the setting in which you take it. So there's this really interesting phenomenon um, in the from the Vietnam War, um, which American soldiers particularly, the, uh, most of the heroin that we um, have in Australia and in the Southeast Asia com- comes from that kind of golden triangle in um, around Vietnam and uh, has always been that way. And so when uh, America was in Vietnam, they started using heroin just recreationally, some of the soldiers, and uh, developed a dependence on it. Um, but when they went back home, the expectation was that they would need lots of treatment and withdrawal and stuff, but most of them just kind of gave up and they were fine because the setting that they were in was conducive to using and when they were out of that setting, um, all of those cues and triggers that encouraged them to use were gone. So there's this really interesting phenomenon that um, the environment that you're in also impacts significantly on whether you use drugs or drink um, and how many problems you have with well, and when I think of that setting, uh, Dr. Lillian Najad, I think of the cultural setting that we live in in this country too. How much do you think mm-hmm. that impacts people's uh, predisposition or, or tendency to overindulge, particularly well, at Christmas, I guess? Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a really uh, important environmental factor is just our, our societal norms. I mean, learning is a function often of just what we see in our environment. So if we are seeing that it is part of what the culture does to celebrate, for instance, or to relieve stress, then we learn that this is potentially uh, the behavior to choose when we are experiencing those those issues. And Lillian, do you have other thoughts about why some people are more likely than others to, to reach for drugs and alcohol over those healthier long-term management strategies for our stress levels? Yeah, uh, just adding on to what Nicole was saying, obviously there are the, the genetic and biological factors and environmental factors like modeling that we just talked about. There also can be experiences in people's lives or, or current circumstances and situations that people are in that are highly distressing. 
And when we um, are experiencing trauma or great distress, um, we, you know, our bodies kind of go into that fight flight mode. And often we choose flight, which is avoidance. And substance um, use can be one of the um, most prominent ways that we can try to avoid or escape distress or distressing circumstances and distressing emotions and also distressing thoughts. Yes, yeah, that's an interesting one. We're going to talk about uh, the way we think about alcohol and drugs in a moment with Dr Lillian Najad and Nicole Lee. But texts coming in. Everyone is addicted to something, surely, says Andrew in the Northern Rivers. Substances, power, self-doubt. That's an interesting one, Andrew. Have you been to my house too? This is getting a bit creepy. (laughs) Nicole, how do we define problematic substance use? Is it different for different people? Um, Yes, there's the short answer. Um, As as I said, that we think of alcohol use and problems and and drug use and problems on a continuum. And there's an element of how much and how frequently you use. We know that uh, a higher frequency of use of any drug, including alcohol, um, increases the risk of dependence. Okay, so if you have a little bit of alcohol every day as opposed to yeah. know, three or four drinks on a weekend. Yes, that's right. And the reason um, for that is um, the elimination period of alcohol. So it takes about 24 hours for alcohol to completely leave your body, even though you're not feeling the effects of it anymore. And if you use again within that 24-hour period, then your your set rate kind of gets higher and higher and higher and you need more and more alcohol to... Um, to feel the same effects from it. And that's how people develop a tolerance and that's why people then need um, withdrawal to get their body back to the, the set rate. And so when we think about something being a problem for people, some people say, look, I drink a lot, but it's not a problem for me. Like I function well in my life, I can still work, my relationships are fine. Where's the line? Yeah, well, that is a that's an interesting um, question. And that I usually say to people, well, when it's starting to impact in, on your life, then that's when it is a problem. And it is true that many people can drink quite a lot and still function at work perfectly fine and their relationships are fine and everything seems okay. The problem with alcohol in particular is that you don't know the damage it's doing until uh, a long over the long term. And so we know that it's related to, it's actually directly causal in seven different types of cancer and heart disease and type 2 diabetes and a whole range of things like that. And you don't notice those things creeping up on you. So it's always better to drink less. It's always better to stick within the, the guidelines, the Australian guidelines for drinking, which are 10 standard drinks, no more than 10 standard drinks a week and no more than four in one session. And that Um, If you stick within that, then you would probably be using two or three times a week a couple of drinks at a time, and that would be a lower-risk way of of consuming alcohol. Yeah, so you've got to give your body time to do that elimination, clear it out of your system. Uh, This is an interesting one, which I think we'll send to Dr Lillian Najad via text. Can you help me, please? I have an addiction to competitive online games, not World of Warcraft or any of those fantasy games, but repetitive Sudoku word games and (laughs) nonogram puzzles, it says. I don't know what that means. Sometimes six to eight hours a day. My doctor doesn't help me. Do you have any solutions, please? And I'm not laughing uh, at you, texter. I, I love those puzzles to and if I had the time I would play them much more but Lillian do you have any thoughts that might help our correspondent there? Yeah I think um, the main thought that I have is that sometimes we use distraction techniques to relieve stress and this sounds like a distraction 
Um, and what, what I would suggest is to have a uh, bigger breadth of activities that you can choose from. So there, there's not necessarily anything wrong with using Sudoku as a, as a strategy to relieve stress, unless you're using it all the time, and unless you're actually using distraction as a method all the time, because distraction is an avoidance behavior as well. So we want like a mix of strategies. Some can be avoidance-based, like distraction that isn't going to do any kind of physical harm to you necessarily, but it's it's obviously taking up a lot of time and it's going to cause some significant impact on the rest of your life, even if it's not physically impacting you. So I'd say create and use and practice more strategies and and for them not to all be distraction-based. Mm. And Lillian, when we think about, I guess, the fact that some of us get really positive associations with alcohol or drugs, you know, the, the idea that I do this when I'm having fun, I do it to socialise, it makes me more interesting or, you know, having a great time. What are some ways psychologically to fight back back against those positive associations that might come up if we, if we're, if we think about having that substance? Yeah, I think it's really important to really understand the function of the substance for a person. It's going to be different for everybody. Like we were saying before, for some people, it's to express joy and experience pleasant emotions. For others, it's to decrease unpleasant emotions and distress. For some people, it's about increasing courage or increasing energy or increasing focus, depending on the substances that they're choosing. So once you kind of know what the function of the behavior is, then you can start really thinking about, well, what other things can serve that function that are as effective but healthier and aren't going to cause that longer term harm? Charlie and Canberra's texted in. Uh, great discussion. Psychologist Carl Rogers talked about positive addiction, running, yoga, swimming, a creative pursuit and uh, shifting things that way. Uh, potential evidence of the role of emotional difficulties set and setting in hard drug addiction arises from considering many of us at some point in life are prescribed opiates following surgery but don't become addicted after treatment. Uh, that's from Jean. Nicole, we talked before about the, the heartening news that your genetics is not going to set you into an addiction for your life, but that habits can play a strong role. How easy is it to change a habit? Uh, Well, it depends how ingrained that habit is and how attached, emotionally attached to it you are. Uh, So some people find it quite easy. They get into a habit and they'll they'll just go, I've got the motivation to stop it and they will stop immediately. Um, More more often, um, it takes a few goes before you can break a habit, um, especially if it's one that you've come to rely on um, emotionally or physically. Yep. So there are people who say, I've given up smoking 15 times, but then they crack That's it on the 16th. Exactly. Yeah. And and any break from alcohol or drugs is a healthy thing to do. So even if you have a break and you slip up or you relapse um, or you, and you don't, you're not meeting your goals every, every single day, that's absolutely fine. You don't need to stress about that. Just get back on the back on the path. Yep. And Lillian, we mentioned at the start of this discussion about ways that we can uh, switch to healthier coping strategies. Can you tell us a bit more about what they might look like? Yeah. So um, w- there are lots of different kinds of coping strategies. Some are kind of body-based um, where we're trying to relax our bodies and then in turn that will help us relax our minds. And then others are brain or mind base where we're like working on our thoughts and that will help kind of relax our bodies. So right. things Tell us that about will the help. body ones perhaps. 
Okay, so the body ones include things like relaxation skills. Um, one of the most common ones is called progressive muscle relaxation. And what that is, it's like a, a 15 to 20 minute exercise where you systematically tense and then relax different muscle groups in your body. So you might start from your head and go down to your toes. Or you might start from your toes and go up to your head. And it takes about 15 to 20 minutes to do. And what that does is it teaches your it teaches you what your body feels like when it's tense and what it feels like when it's relaxed and it induces the relaxation response. So basically turning on that parasympathetic part of your nervous system um, and relieving you from the fight flight. And so is that something Lillian that you'd recommend using in the moment or is it something we need to scaffold earlier on? Yes. I think this is a good one to practice to reduce your overall level of anxiety and stress. Because what that can do is it'll lower that kind of baseline level of stress and anxiety that you have so that when you have periods of higher distress, you're not kind of reaching that panic line. You're kind of able to manage it better. So it kind of lowers your vulnerability to stress and anxiety. If you want something that's more immediate that you can use in the moment, mindfulness exercises, particularly doing ones where you're focused on pleasant um, senses, like so pleasant things that you're hearing or seeing or or touching, that can be a really helpful way to, to ground you in the present moment so that you're not focused on terrible things that have happened in the past or worries about things that are happening in the future. You're just focused on the pleasant moment and on the present moment on something pleasant. That can be really helpful. Or abdominal breathing and other kinds of breathing exercises can be things that you can use. Yeah, I love this idea of the, the pleasant present moment. That sounds like a wonderful one to practice. Just quickly as we finish up, uh, Nicole Lee, what are some uh, policy uh, things that might be useful here if we are seeing, as you said, a rise in problematic drug and alcohol use in Australia? Yeah, look, the the one of the biggest drivers of people drinking particularly is commercial. So advertising to kids, for example, um, there's a kind of loophole during sport where kids get access to all sorts of them bombarded with alcohol ads. And we know that um, kids form their attitudes to alcohol like well before they start drinking as young as five or six. Um, so that would be an important um, thing in the long term to reduce um, alcohol problems. And the other thing is access, which is um, one of the single biggest drivers of drinking. So the more access you have to alcohol, the more outlets that sell alcohol in your area, the more likely you are to drink. And so, you know, that now we can get alcohol delivered in under an hour and it's so easy to access. You can just walk up the road. It's everywhere. So um, kind of reining in some of those access um, points would be pretty helpful for people who are trying to cut back. Yeah, so the structural issues as well as our own habits and inclinations today on Life exactly. Matters. Nicole, Lillian, thank you both so much for joining us today on the program. Thanks, Hilary. Thank you. Nicole Lee is adjunct professor at the National Drug Research Institute and Dr Lillian Najad is a clinical psychologist. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.